When I say full of flaws, I again I'm talking about our conventional approach to periodization planning programming. It doesn't factor in what does the athlete think and how can I change that. It doesn't screen for the athlete beliefs. It doesn't build in athlete perspectives and opinions and feedback and athlete self-direction. That was John Kylie, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online sports technology store that curates the best of in various elements of training, such as timing systems with the free lap timing system, training tools with things such as blood flow restriction training and the K-Box, athlete monitoring devices such as velocity-based training, force plates and the VO2 master, and much more. I choose sponsors for this show that I use their products personally. And I have been loving using blood flow restriction training this past year. The free lap timing system has been an absolute staple for me. I've really enjoyed using bar speed tracking and the K-Box. Those and other products in their store have been a really valuable part of not just my coaching journey, but also my journey as an athlete. They have as well an amazing blog on sports performance and are a top-notch company with great customer service. Be sure to check them out, and you can do that at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Oftentimes, training is thought of only on the level of exercises, sets and reps, training progressions, biomechanics, and constraints. And these things are really important and foundational to good coaching practice, but it doesn't stop there. A complete approach to coaching involves the totality of the athlete. It involves the mind, the athlete's perception, their belief systems. How are they navigating a workout mentally and emotionally, as well as physiologically and biomechanically? To talk about that totality of coaching, we have guest John Kiley. John is a senior lecturer in performance and innovation at the University of Limerick. John has extensive athletic performance training and consultation background, and he's had stops in coaching with sports such as rugby soccer, track, and Paralympics. John is a frequent keynote speaker, and in his own time as an athlete, he won multiple titles in kickboxing and boxing. John appeared back on the podcast years ago, all the way on episode 113, where he was speaking on the brain, variability, and coordination. On today's show, John will be covering training on the level of belief systems, on the level of placebo and nocebo effects, and the impact of how we communicate training to the mind of the athlete, and ultimately to the way they adapt to that training. John will be talking about coaching practices on the level of a screen of beliefs. So often we have a movement screen preceding training, but rarely do we screen on the level or even have it in our minds. What is the athlete believing about this style of training? What's their background? How are they perceiving what's being done? What's their goal and their vision? And when we really can bring all these concepts together, the belief and perception with the mechanical stressors and, and that progression and the biomechanics, we really can see training in a powerful way. This was a really fun show. I absolutely love how John's mind works, how he has such a strong foot in the art and the practice and also the science of things. And the integration of that and the conversation was really helpful and enjoyable for me. So let's get to episode 329 here with John Kiley. So I'm curious. You had done a presentation on this, and, and I think you've talked about this on multiple podcasts, but the idea 
or maybe this was the quote, is that the worth of a training program is never contained in the prescription. I love that statement. So could you get into that a little bit more on, because I think most people would think just one last little caveat is when people start in coaching or strength and conditioning or whatever the term for that, the field is, they always think, well, what exercises, what sets, what reps? And they, they tend to think it's, it's this training program. This is the best training program. And, and think of it on that, just that minute level. Curious what your thoughts are on the totality of training. What makes good training that really goes beyond just the prescription? Okay. Uh, and that's a really good question. And I guess I'd start my answer by saying that I was that coach who put lots and lots of time into exercise design and training prescription and getting everything all my parameters nice and symmetrical you know and if we do this it will reduce volume and and i was uh, yeah i was a nazi you know a training prescription nazi Uh, and i still think it's worthwhile thinking about it deeply but i guess over the past few years it seems to me from a practical perspective Looking at the great coaches of yesteryear, you know, going back to 40s and 50s, and just seeing the commonalities in terms of they were all people who in their own very different ways were good communicators, inspirational. They were able to get ideas and beliefs and attitudes and perspectives out of their heads into the athletes' heads. So it was something more, and I, like I've worked with, you know, Olympic gold medal coaches, FIFA World Coaches of the Year, top class rugby coaches, you know, internationally decorated, all that type of stuff. And sometimes it's very hard to find the commonality between the key coaches, between the really great coaches. And I thought, well, if I kind of hang around not long enough and think about it hard enough, I'll find the commonalities. And I think I have, well, you know, I, I have kind of opinions now but they weren't what I started out looking for I thought it was all you know you need to be a genius at putting programs together and stuff like that some great coaches have really basic programs but they're programs that I guess the key ingredient is the athlete buys into them the athlete is engaged the athlete invests the athlete can draw a straight line from what I'm doing today and where I want to go what my long-term career goals are what my athletic meaning is and if they can draw that straight line then i think that that's much more important than how great the technique is or you know what type of specific modalities you're using and and in what order or how you're creating your blocks or your training phases yeah so what i mean by that is that we're all brought up and we're still brought up. Young coaches are still educated with, well, if you want to make a, a disadaptation, then this is what you do. And yeah, it's always nice if the athlete buys in, but they don't necessarily have to. Once they do the work, they'll get the adaptation. But that's not the case. That is not the case. And I'm saying that not because it is my opinion, but I, my opinion doesn't mean squatting in the, in the general run of things, but that's what the evidence is clearly saying to me, not the evidence in the sporting world, because we haven't looked at this uh, in this step. But if you go to medical contexts or health contexts, 
and you look at the kind of big data research, a common theme is that, yeah, you know, it's really important what someone's health behaviours are, but what's also really important is what they believe or how effective they believe their health behaviours are. And so I look at my career and I, I spent the first half of it trying to make improvements by, you know, technical or prescription, you know, mechanical, change the mechanical parameters to get gains. But now I think, well, what's way more effective is, okay, how can I communicate this better to the athlete? How can I get the athlete to kind of uh, to see the benefits of this? How can I get the athlete more involved in the, in the program, uh, integrate their feedback, provide some education to the athlete so their feedback next season will be better than it is the, this season? How can I screen the athletes for their beliefs? How can we, at the moment, we just, training theory at least suggests we can just prescribe. If you're a sprinter and you're 22 and you're coming off this training background, this is what I'm going to prescribe. Yeah, but what does the athlete believe about that? Do they actually think that, okay, yeah, that worked for me? Or do they have a whole load of biases and predispositions and doubts? that you don't know about because those things influence influences in the wrong word. When I, the, the way I think of it is, what's the primary stimulus? What is the thing that launches the adaptive response? And so uh, in training theory, what we believe is what launches the adaptive response is the physical activity, the, the, the load, the volume, the intensity, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we know and we acknowledge that, well, you know, nutritional state probably has an effect to some degree. And we think, well, the amount of stress someone is under will have an effect to some degree. But they're kind of influences that slightly adapt that initial stimulus. But I'm, what I'm suggesting is that's not the case. That initial stimulus, the initial adaptive signal is influenced directly by your kind of psycho-emotional state in relation to what you're doing, why you're doing it, a set of beliefs around the, all around that. And collectively, your, your thoughts, your emotions, your perceptions, and the physical activity, they constitute, they are the generators of that initial adaptive signal. And that's not something that we're taught. We're taught the opposite. We're thought, okay, you can have a psychology class later on, but now we're going to talk about training and what drives expectation. Yeah, it's, I, I think so often uh, people want to separate things to make it easier. People want to have sets and reps in its own little box, and that's an end of itself. <laughs> Exercises and biomechanics in its own little box, and that's an end of itself. And then, oh, let's put the psychology over here. Hopefully we get to it. You know, It'd be nice to get to that. <laughs> yeah, and I just did this podcast, Jamie Smith, talking about just that, like we we try to separate, or oftentimes the social and emotional is separated, but when you bring them together, it's it's really substantial, the difference that you get. And one of the, the first thing I think that I read that got my wheels turning on, on that level in the sense, and I was like you, you know, you, you had mentioned like you're the, the, the program writing like nerd, the periodization nerd. I mean, that was my upbringing. That was age probably 18 to... Th early 30s for me and even still now i still enjoy like one of my latest kicks is getting into 
like Borashiko's powerlifting templates. I don't do powerlifting training, but I'm interested in the variability. It's like a same intensity, but it's variable. It's like a little randomness and variability from week to week. That intrigues me. <laughs> I feel like that fits with like laws of nature. That's probably why it intrigues me. Anyway, sorry, not trying to get hung up on that. I'm, I'm a nerd too at that. And one of the first things that I had read, this was on a running forum. I don't even remember what I was, you know, what the goal of my search was, but someone had uh, written this down with track and field. They had said something to the tune of distance, co- uh, like good distance coaches. They're kind of like tacticians. The jumps coaches are the nerds. <laughs> so I was a jumps coach. I mean, go figure. But they had said that good sprint coaches were masters of culture. Like they created a fiery and exciting culture. And that got my wheels spinning. I was like, wait, I thought it was all about, you know, having the ultimate sprint program. And I, yeah, I mean, you need to train intelligently. But there was other things. And I forget when I first read that. Maybe it was like, I don't know, seven years ago. But there's other things that I saw ever since then that kept compounding themselves to the belief that there's a lot more than just the training write-up. Um, another, the as you were talking, I, I wrote this down. I, when I was working with swimming, I saw this. Well, one, swimming was interesting because coaches in swimming don't write periodization like track coaches do. They are more, I mean, it's because it's like the water and it's more like of a feel. You know, you, you, there's more feeling. There's more like tactile in the water than, uh, than land. And they would tend to really live in the moment more than maybe a track coach would write like their periodization for the fall. I never saw a swim coach write their periodization for the fall. I mean, they kind of knew in their head, but. In swimming, though, too, one of the interesting things I noticed, and I saw this in swimming more than track for whatever reason, they called it a senior swim. So an athlete's senior year in college, they they would just, at the national meet, they would just go off. A lot of times, they would just blow away their old performances. It was almost like something was swimming. They could just, their will for it being their last hurrah. <laughs> and for the swimmers, it was because a lot of them just quit swimming after that because it was so intense all the way leading up to that. But I, I remember literally seeing one athlete, a female athlete who had struggled with injury, like was kind of up and down, a very good athlete, but with three months to go before her senior year final meet, like something just flipped in her. It wasn't, we didn't change her programming. I don't think her water programming changed, but just some switch flipped and she just swam lights out that last meet. I mean, it was insane. Like she, she, I think she ended up with all personal bests and it was, you could just kind of tell or sense that that meet, that like that final destiny was pulling her forward on all levels. And I, I could clearly sense it far went beyond any training because we didn't change our training. Like nothing, nothing else changed, at least at my gym training, like nothing else really changed. Not that much. I mean, a little bit, but it wasn't so substantial. It's like, oh yeah, we tweaked this and that's what, no, it wasn't. Anyways, sorry, just kind of a long tired, but I started there as well. And yeah, just kind of seeing those things over time, you start to ask questions and you start to say, huh, why did they end up doing as well as they could? And then you have to reverse engineer that with all the other factors that exist in there. Oh, I think that's a, that's, and, and that's a common observation from, I think, all coaches that something happens unexpectedly that wasn't predicted by training form or there had been an injury or, you know, it's, it's something that's, um, that's not normal or that wasn't expected. And one way of thinking of this or, yeah, one way of shedding some light on this is think about placebo and nocebo effects. What are they? Well, you boil it all down and all, you know, and we associate them with deception. But it's not to do with deception, and I'll explain why. Mm. For me, all the placebo effect is 
I get some signal from the world. I pick up some external cue, and that cue is telling me that, okay, the future is a little rosier than you thought. Things aren't as bad as you, as you thought. What that allows you to do, you know, subconsciously, is release more resources. Okay, you know what? I am not in the dangerous situation I thought I was in. I can afford to uh, release some energy, feel a little less, less anxious, dedicate some energy to whatever it might be. So it really, all placebo is, is I'm taking in a cue from the external world. I'm interpreting that to me. The future is a little brighter. That then allows me to release resources to whatever it is. And releasing resources can be thinking. Thinking demands energy, mm-hmm. demands you know, cerebral blood flow. That's something that we limit in, in if we are stressed, for example, or you know, in, in context of threat. You're either going to di- divert an awful lot of energy to worrying about something, but it won't be going to something positive, something productive. So if you think of placebo and nocebo, nocebo then is obviously the opposite of placebo, even twin type thing, except it's not. Nocebo is more sensitive. And when it's activated, it's more powerful than placebo. And I think that that's very informative for, for coaches because it kind of all of a sudden puts an emphasis, a direct physiological link if I want this person to adapt from this training session, I need to get my messaging right about this training session. If I get my messaging wrong, they can keep doing those reps until they're blue in the face, but they're not going to get any positive adaptation from it. Why? Well, if I'm picking up negative signals, which could well be from the coach, and there is some initial research on this where even a coach's facial expression, mm. if it interpreted as negative, has been has uh, negative effects on that. So from that, from, from the kind of the, the perspective I'm getting at it here, what the athlete thinks, the signals, the cues that they pick up that they're surrounded by in any environment, within the training environment, those cues, I won't say they need to be carefully managed, but they need to be, con- you need to be conscious. Brett Bartholomew, if, if you know him, has, I think one of his books was Conscious Coaching. Conscious is a really good word. If I'm coaching, I need to be really conscious that if I give negative signals, that's going to negatively affect this athlete and their ability to adapt to this training. As a coach, sometimes you need to give bad news, but there's also awareness around how that's framed. Simple study in the medical literature, if I say, well, here's a medication, 10% of people get side effects, versus I say, Here's a medication. 90% of people don't get side effects. You are telling the truth. You are being honest in both options. But in one option, in the, the negatively framed one, people get more side effects than in the positively framed one. No other difference other than 10% get negative effects, 90% don't get negative effects. So there are small little tweaks that, again, if we're conscious, if we're coaching in that conscious manner, we can manage our communication. And coaching communication for me is a training variable. Your presence as a coach is a training variable, the same as the weight of the bar or the number of reps or the, the time of the lap, whatever it is, it is a training variable. It's a training variable because it 
substantially regulates the resources that are released by brain and body to adapt to the training stimulus. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the Shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, I yeah I mentioned that it was maybe like yes yeah, six or seven or whatever I said years ago that I read that the little piece about the different track coaches. But I, I, the longer I've gone, and the more I think about the placebo effect, the more I think about like even my own training history as well as athletes I've worked with. But it's easiest the the end of one you know in your own experience is always an easy place to go. And I there was a year where I may have talked about this on the podcast, but when I was twenty one, so almost twenty years ago now. 18 years ago, I had um, just an absolute breakout track and field. I mean, it was so much better this track season than the previous years. I, I high jumped about 10 centimeters higher, triple jumped over a meter farther. Like, I mean, it was my, I got very, my speed was the best that it had ever been. I mean, I was so athletic compared to all my past years, which one of the past years, I mean, amongst other things, mistakes that I made, uh, overthinking and trying to guide too much of my own training was one element. I, I had an assistant coach who, was like the master of psychology. Looking back, this guy was the master. And I didn't really understand it at the time. I just liked him talking to him about training and stuff. But he would talk to me about, like he was in contact with a Russian high jump coach. You know, the Russians having a lot of the best high jumpers in the world typically. And this high jump coach had jumped like seven feet six or two meters 30 back in the day and was still jumping well. And he would always tell me, oh, there's you know, Igor told me about this exercise that he did. And, and so, of course, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is amazing. And I do it. And I, I and they were, of course, good exercises, too. But there was also that mystique of there's this, this, you know, training group does it and this is going to be the best thing. And that coach as well would, he would give you a placebo effect that you even knew, like you, you knew he was doing it, but you, it didn't matter. He would always, if you jumped, um, like if you jump, were long jumping and you jump like you had a foul and it was like 21 feet or something, he would just get all excited and say, oh, that was 23 feet. Like, and he would fully embody like as if you jumped that. And and we all knew he was like exaggerating, but it kind of didn't matter because the energy that gave you, you like were, you wanted to let yourself kind of be tricked that you actually had more in you. And it was just like little things like that. Even, um... Even the bar that year, when I would jump in the fall, the bar was like an inch lower, or it was an inch lower than I thought it was. The whole fall, I thought it was jumping an inch or maybe two inches higher than I actually was. So I believed I was actually better than I was. And there was just so much psychological stuff that year that I didn't take into account. And then I will see that in, um, you know, with the placebo effect, but swimming, it was a 
cool one to go through this is I would see swim coaches, one in particular, who the taper at the end of the year. So it's like the month before their biggest meet, he had this huge taper checklist. It was like a page or maybe two pages long of all the things you weren't supposed to do. Like, don't walk up the stairs. or It's just like, it would just get crazy, like silly. But it, that team tapered really, really well. And I think it was because there was all these, it was almost like the sillier it was sometimes, the more like psychological power that had. Like you believed 100% in that taper process. And, you know, whether the little suggestions did anything or they didn't, it didn't matter because it kind of set that off in your psychology. The, the, actually, the question I want to ask you with that, because you mentioned ethically, and I guess we could think about that like medically, like the, the placebo effect is powerful. It, but like, to me, it's always like, well, the long-term effect. Like if I am giving athletes like this taper checklist or telling them these things, and it's not necessarily true. I mean, maybe they, they, am I like, am I, you know, what's like the the level of optimism, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. Like, because when athlete, when people find out it's not a placebo or it was a placebo, like I know in the medical world, there's a, a good study from this, like the Kerboisen study from the 60s. Some guy believed that he was getting this ultimate treatment. His like cancer tumor shrunk when he was getting this. And then that kind of went on for a bit. But then when he found out it wasn't, it was a sham treatment. Then he like, he ended up dying. Because then, you know, his belief was shattered. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, or ask, is what are your, what's your take on, um, like you said, ethically, you know, using that placebo effect or being op, uh, optimist, uh, an optimist in a way you know is going to help the athlete reach their best potential? Okay, so I guess just to backtrack a little, when I was talking about the placebo, placebo effect, what I was really getting at was the power of suggestion and belief and positive reframing of current situation. So, for example, if we take placebo, I, I would definitely, definitely not mislead an athlete at all because it's a very short-term strategy. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the athlete finds out, well, you know, I don't really, I can't really trust this guy, or they're telling me a lie, or they're telling me a lie now, maybe they're just saying it to cheer me up or to make me feel better. So I... I that's not what I'm talking about. And the second thing I'd say there is deception isn't necessary. So, for example, there's a phenomenon, a studied phenomenon called the honest placebo. Uh, first major study, uh, 2008, a guy called Ted Kapchuk in Harvard. You bring people in, they were all chronic irritable bowel sufferers. So, haven't had it myself, but seemingly it's extremely painful, uh, you know, when, when it's serious. So these are people that, that have been around all the docs, you know, and they've tried all the treatments. And this is last gasp saloon. I'm signing up for a study. They go into the medic's office and the medic said, I'm prescribing you these tablets or these pills. They're, they are sugar pills. There is no medicinal value. But placebos have been shown to reduce pain in all of these studies and pain is the most researched thing aspect of placebo and it's you know in many tests placebos have outperformed uh, opioids so we're not talking about that kind of small little effects these are these are big effects so those people who got the honest placebos enhanced pain outcome hmm. so what that, what that says to me is and, and and this has been investigated a ton of times since it's like it's not about deception. It is about, I guess, uh, 
positively framed messages. You know, and let me see, what, what I'm trying to think of what would be an example. As coaches, we need to give critical feedback, but we can also always positively frame that feedback. That's one dimension of it. Another dimension of it is showing the athlete that we respect them and their goals, their long-term goals, where they want to get, and everything we do for them, even though we, we might be serving the initial needs of a club or a team or a university, we're also doing our best to service their long-term needs. So when they look at us and they come into one of our programs, they can say, okay, this person has my back. This person is going to be honest with me. I can trust this person. They will not deceive me. Uh, this person communicates well with me. They obviously pay attention to what I think and care and believe. It's putting all of those things in place. That it, This hasn't been studied directly in our world, but if you take the, the strong evidence, overwhelming evidence from other worlds, specifically medically, you can see that, well, actually, they'll all stack up. They will add up and they will make your program, your athlete outcomes more robust, for sure. There's a useful concept around here, around this. And again, it's one of these words, kind of like stress, you know, it means a little bit of everything and it's not well defined, but the concept of mindset. Now, from a scientific perspective, mindset is, it's not one thing. You don't have a mindset for your life. But what you do have is you might have a mindset around strength training or a mindset around high-intensity high sessions or a mindset around injury risk. So a mindset really is the set of beliefs, the set of expectations and associations you make in terms of a specific phenomenon or specific sub-phenomenon of your life. So, for example, it's how I feel about high-intensity training. It's a set of beliefs there. But those beliefs will, if you like, set the neurobiological backdrop. I'm looking out through my eyes. I'm interpreting this session. I hate this session. I'm anxious before it. Energy is diverted into all types of protective mechanisms or to power protective mechanisms. It is not allocated to, no, 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 this is a good session. This is going to help you. I feel confident. I feel competent. I feel safe doing this session. If, I, if I'm in that situation, then all these adaptive resources are, are released. And it's not just energy. It's complex molecules that go into you know, driving neural, neural change if you're learning a new coordinative skill. It's everything. It drives your perceptions, your cognitions, uh, your emotions, your biological backdrop. And the biological, the neurochemical and biological backdrop that we overlay the actual physical training on, that's the fertile ground or it's the barren ground. And it's ground that we as coaches can help prepare and make more nourishing or make, you know, more uh, nutrient scarce, if you like. Struggling for words, but you, you, you get the picture. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I have a, a couple follow-ups off that. The first one, actually, I'll go to something you had said with the brain. The brain is an energy, like the brain takes like 20% or something of our glucose or something like that. You had mentioned that. So it's 2% uh, of body weight, 20% of energy demand Yeah, under and normal conditions. Yeah. yeah. And with so much, uh, yeah, like an athlete who overthinks. So if that 
I, I just think a lot about training. I would just call it like training in the present moment. This maybe doesn't, the second question had more to do with the placebo effect, but I just wanted to cover this before I asked you more on that, that uh, how do we establish that belief system? I guess what I'm trying to say is athletes who overthink the process and that drains you, draining you of energy or possibly even adap- adaptive resources. I think about it in the sense of what we call like like in a bat like basketball, I played basketball and did track. And in a basketball game, I mean, I we didn't have GPS when I was playing, but I would <laughs> I would estimate I did dozens, if not well over a hundred short accelerations hard in the course of a, a basketball game, you know, varying distances and dozens of jumps of varying intensities and you know, sustained like aerobic and not really lactate, but maybe a couple sprints, maybe slightly getting in there. Anyways. If you made a training program of all that work and, and called it training and assigned mental willpower to each movement you did, I feel like that would be an exhausting workout relative to just playing basketball. I mean, of course, you're, you're, you're feeling it after you play or whatever, whatever your sport is. But when we, we actually make it training and we assign thought to it, my, I guess one of my question is, is your thoughts on um, the, the present moment in training? when and how athletes should intellectually participate because uh, i do think athletes should be intellectually bought in i guess my my what well, my question is your thoughts on the the level of intellectual what type of intellectual participation you feel like is ideal for athletes in the course of training okay it's uh, <clears throat> a good question uh, interesting you didn't mention details in your in your basketball when you were running. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, eccentric too, yeah. Okay, that's... Okay, okay. Just checking back. So, one way to think about that is we have all these ways, and you've alluded to this already, how we, we kind of parcel up different things and put them in silos. So, one of these concepts would be energy. So, there's cognitive load, there, you know, there might be psycho-emotional load, there's physiological load, but all of those feed into the same, let's call it stress response, or sorry, that can manifest as a, a stress. But what is stress? Well, stress is something that demands energy. I think the stress has uncertainty. Now, I, I'm saying uncertainty because that's the word that the people who specialize in this field, that's what they use now. They don't think of stress the way we think of stress in the sports world. Conventionally, you know, and if you read any periodization piece ever, they'll talk about Hanselia in the 1930s and the general adaptation syndrome. And that really was where this great scientist, Hanselia, did a lot of experiments with rodents. He made them very hot. He made them very cold. He starved them did a lot of nasty things to rodents and came up with this idea that there was a predictable general way that um, living beings beings adapted to stress. And this is actually where the kind of myth of I can predict training outcomes is rooted in. That's what it is. And that's what all periodization theorists hark back to and say, well, we can essentially, not in these words, but saying we can predict because the general adaptation syndrome has a, has a predictable trajectory. Now, I'm not saying quite a lot there, but the important tidbit here is that we're assuming 
or we have culturally made an assumption that you can predict training outcomes. And the evidence is completely against that. Hmm. You know, you, you can maybe predict the average of 20 people, but you can't predict training outcomes. Now, I realize I'm after sliding off your, your question, but I'm kind of shown on here while I'm on this train of thought. So, so it kind of feels to me like we have this kind of disconnect in our training theory. We have this sense that if you survey coaches, and I'm saying this because I've, I've recently done this with a, a doctoral candidate I work with, German Sports Institute, Techie uh, and Adika Danes, and we asked coaches what they thought. Did they think that, for example, buy-in was important or that athletes' emotional investment was important? And or if uh, how the athlete understood the program was important, and they all scored those things really highly, as highly as the physical training that the athlete did, and that kind of knocked me for six because I would never have guessed that. And if you read the training theory, what's in the literature, you would never have guessed that because that's not reflected in the literature at all. The sports science literature is all about do this to get this. You know, it's a mm-hmm. very predictive model. And I guess where I come in with the general adaptation syndrome is that what it, that's what it harks back to. This thing that was formulated in, you know, 1936 that suggests that there's a predictable trajectory and we can therefore predict training stress and the adaptive response for training stress. The rogue has been completely pulled out of that, you know, 60 years ago in other worlds. But we're still educating young coaches that way. We're still being asked to present training programs that way, as in it's, it's, it's numbers. It's an empirical training prescription. It's the Excel sheet. And I guess the quote that you mentioned at the start, you know, that the, the value of it or the worth of a training program is never kind of baked into its prescription. No, it's not. It's baked into how does the athlete interpret this? Do they understand it? Do they believe in it? Can they draw that line between what the coach says and where I want to go? What I want my athletic career to be about? My purpose, my athletic purpose. And the more we make those links explicit to the athlete, the more we convince the athlete in, a, in an, an honest way, in an ethical way, that I think this would be the best way for you then I think we're, we're not just doing the right thing, but we're actually doing something that is fundamentally baked into their training response. If they do not have faith in you, they will not respond appropriate or optimally. If they are nervous, they will not mm. respond. If they're anxious, if, if any of those things, they will not adapt because resources, which are tightly regulated, our body, our brain doesn't have access to limitless resources. And we're kind of evolutionary programmed to be very sparing of them. So mm-hmm. these things don't get regulated willy-nilly. It's not just a case of have a high carb carb drink or a protein shake and you're good to go. No, that's not it at all. If you're highly stressed, you're, those calories will be conserved. So in relation to the relevance of the athlete's attention, I think that's fundamentally important. It's, it's what they're paying attention to and how they're interpreting those signals. So if I'm paying attention to that pain in my knee from that old ACL I had years ago, 
you know, in a, you, you could think of that, that that's like an active nocebo type effect. I'm focusing on, and, and then if, if the thoughts that I'm generating as a result of that attention is, oh, there's a little ping again, there's a little ping again, that's a recipe for, you know, okay, just by doing that, I'm altering what's happening in my brain. I'm altering the signals to my body. I'm altering how I move. Okay, so now I'm after messing with the, the kind of the, the, what's going on at a muscular level and what tissues are being stressed. And it's been made more suboptimal. Now I'm setting myself up for, now I'm going to develop another hotspot. Then I'm going to adapt some more. Then I'm going to get injured because sooner or later I'm going to have to, I'm going to be asked to execute a movement that I am just not set up to do because I've, you know, I've, uh, I've limited my, my, uh, my safe options for executing that movement because I've worried too much about it, in a sense. Now, and this is, this is something that would be a very strong message coming out with the pain research, and that would be that if you want something to hurt more, think about it more, pay more attention to it. If you want something mm-hmm. to be less disruptive to you, you need to think about, you know, you need to have a coping mechanism, a self-talk mechanism that can divert you, your, your attention and your negative association with what is often a very small signal, what we might think of as a small pain signal, that we wrap all these interpretations and worries and anxieties around. And then by the time it hits your higher brain, it's just been amplified through the roof. And you keep doing that, and that gets worse and worse, and it becomes a, what's the right word? It becomes a chronic problem. And you see that again in pain. Often people are getting pain when the source of pain is actually can't be found anymore. But now it's been wired into a neural loop that's just kind of self-perpetuating. And what's doing it? Well, it's our focus on that initial small signal and then our overreaction to that initial small signal. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard coaches talk about this and I've seen it. You have the athlete who maybe they walk in the gym and they're like, they might be saying, like, oh, my knee's a little sore or something. And then you roll a ball out and start with a game instead of typical training. If this is the weight room, of course, you know, it could be, but even this could be in a sport practice too. roll a ball out, kids start playing and that knee just gets forgotten instantly. Oftentimes, like depends on who it is. But uh, as soon as the attention goes somewhere else, it's like, oh, and I was just, I, sometimes I think I have my um, my training insights, the place that they hit me more than anything. Sometimes I like to go run in the woods, like trail run kind of, but more like do sprints or run in the creek or and things like that. And just because it's like very variable and all sorts of different obstacles and elements. And I was just thinking, I had this thought the other day that, like, what is driving my adaptation here? Is it, is it the sum of all the mechanical stresses on my body, on my legs as they interact with the ground? Is it, or is it how my body perceives what is happening to me, the training, and how, and then my goal, my vision, my direction, like my why? And I, I get the overwhelming feeling that, that yes, the mechanical stress is, is absolutely important. I think that's important on some key level. That's that's definitely an important element. But if you don't have and going through the process of watching athletes as long as I have, you see that if you have an exceptionally high why and vision and then you're perceiving the workouts well, like that is that recipe for a success. As soon as you 
lose a, a chink in that triad, you know, your vision isn't that, you know, maybe you don't have that much of a vision for yourself. Maybe you perceive you like, oh, well, I really wish I was doing this workout or maybe your threat levels are going off with a particular workout. Or you could say the sets and reps aren't correct with the mechanical stresses or exercise biomechanics as well. But I think if, if, if something's off in one of those three things, you're going to get diminished results. But yet I, we so often only think of it from the level of the mechanics and not those other two. So I was going to say something too about the perception, which I'm kind of getting lost because you know, there's so many concepts flying around here. But even, you know, I know you have young children and one thing I, and you talked about threat and, and stress as it proceeds to training. And one thing I've always noticed watching my kids play and they'll see me exercising too. So they'll try to do, to do some of the things I do. I never like tell them to, <laughs> they're like four and six. I'm not going to tell them to exercise, but they'll see me like hanging from a tree branch, like just for time or something. And my daughter will ask to do it. And she'll like, she wants to see how long, you know, she can go. I don't know if she, it's because she really wants to or because she thinks dad wants her to or something. Hopefully not. But, but she'll do that. And you never see like a look of strain on her face when she's doing like hanging from a tree branch. Or if she'll, she'll see me do a handstand, or she'll go up and do a handstand. And she never looks like she's tired. And children never really look like, like kind of the emotions, like the negative stress and strain that shows up on adults' faces. <laughs> I remember recently... Um, last, the last time I was uh, working in a high school track situation about two years ago, uh, coming in to coach like jumps and hurdles, I, these kids, like they just, they would high jump and you just see like these pained expressions on their face of like, you know, all the adult emotions that they've gained over the years. Whereas kids like don't have that, like, I don't know if you call like a stress or trauma response to exercise, but they don't have it. They're just experiencing it for what it is. And I'm like, oh. We need more of this. You know, if I can help athletes, guide athletes into that. And I think that's where Tommy John, who's been on this podcast, and a lot of people have drawn inspiration from this train like a child. I think that's what he means when he says that is you're not, you know, you're, you're, if you watch a child, they don't have the negative stress psychologically to what we would call exercise that adults do. So anyways, I kind of went started with that triad that I made up in my head and then went off on the train like a child thing. But uh, yeah, I, I just, as you were talking, I, I, it's been fun to formulate that uh, as you go along. Just to jump in on that, because it is a good example. I mean, I, I guess it works both ways. It's, and it's just that they don't have those conditioned beliefs, beliefs embedded in their brains. Yeah. So your daughter can hang and, you know, is very open to they're not jumping up, grabbing the branch and thinking, this is going to hurt. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> or, you know, a uh, kid stubs their toe and you you kiss it and all of a sudden it's better. You know, it's perception. And I guess the most important thing I think from it, the, to take from this, or at least the most important for me from a an understanding point of view is to look at how does performance enhancement to actually happen. How do we get better? Now, again, the old model is a very reactive model. If you do this, you get this. Okay, if you do this physical exercise, you get this physical outcome. And that's what's embedded in sports science, training theory. That's what you get if you do, you know, NSCA, whatever it might be, UKSA over this side, that's what you get. Do this, get this. Now, that's not actually the way stress works in the real world. So it's like training stress happens. That activates a stress response. The reality is 
it is not the physical act that activates the stress response. The stress response is activated by your perception of what's going to happen and how your body needs to prepare for that. So if you think of it, it makes no sense for evolution to have given us a reactive system. So, okay, first this happens, this is the stimulus, and then you react. That's way too slow. That's not, that's not how things go. It's like saying, you know, if you were to do 100 meters, don't do a warm-up. You know you're going to be doing 100 meters. You know you have to be, it has to be good performance, so you get prepared. Kind of the exact same for your body. So your brain is always making predictions. This is what's going to happen. And as kids, we're not great at it because we don't have experience, but then we build up these, and some of them are biases and predispositions, but we make predictions. Now, there's a kind of a take-home for this from, from a coaching and training management perspective, and that is, you know, and I hope I've explained that clearly enough, but just to reiterate in case it sounds very, I don't know, kind of airy-fairy, waving my hands in the air, the old perception was first you got a stress, and that stress perturbed homeostasis, and then homeostasis restored, and it restored by going through a number of predictable steps. Fast forward 80 years, and the science says, no, 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 there is no general adaptation. And if you wait until you have a stress before you react, that's way too late. You're, you know, that, that's too late, except in extremes. You know, if something happens out of the blue, then you will have a reactive response. But that's pretty much just to save your life. It's things like pH level in the brain and blood circulation in the brain and things like this. They're homeostatic processes. Other processes are what's termed allostatic processes. What's what most people would term them now. Allostatic processes are regulated by prediction. So I'm going to train. What are my set of thoughts, beliefs, assumptions wrapped around this training session and the, and the relevance of this training session to me, to my purpose, my objectives? If it's not clear, then resources are not going to get allocated that freely. I won't have an optimal adaptive response. And again, it goes to the metabolic and mechanical stimuli are overlaid on, on arable ground, on fertile ground, or on barren ground, dependent on where our neurochemistry is, where our biological, our biochem is. And that's regulated by our perceptions, our state of, uh, am, I, am I anxious? Am I not anxious? Am I stressed? Am I not stressed? Am I fearful? Am I not fearful? That's what regulates that. If we're in a place where we're, we know we're going to be challenged, but we feel confident, we feel competent, we know our, the coach has our back. We know uh, we're in a good training group and we've all worked diligently. If you're in that place, then you feel, yeah, you might feel nervous, but you feel ready and you feel confident in your own ability. And that's the perfect place to be. If not, if you and the coach had an argument, if things haven't gone well, if you're paying too much attention to that pain in your knee, then you're in a very, very different place. And both of those places aren't discussed within our kind of training theory. It's all sets, reps, intensities, technique. Those things are important, but they're not the only thing. Yeah. You know, as you're, as you're talking about that too, that like with the gas and how kind of like that lying more along the lines of linear thinking versus 
uh, complex thinking, more modern approach to it. I've thought about, and I've had this discussion with uh, elite level coaches where like if a training, if gas was the way to go, the general adaptation syndrome, and this, this A plus B equals C, like the human is a machine, then you should be able to do, like if a training program worked for you really well four years ago, you should be able to do that exact same training program four years later and get the same result. But that does, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it, never, it never works that way. And I think a lot of times people expect that. They have seen this happen where athletes are individuals, they aren't doing very well in training, and they, are, they might say, oh, well, I used to do this, and it works so well, blah, blah, blah. And yes, maybe there's elements of that for sure that fit with your physiology. I, I'm not saying that that's wrong at all. But at the same time, I like the, the quote that a man never crosses the same river twice because he's not the same man, and it's not the same river. But it's also, we're also not thinking about the social and emotional factors in someone's life. We're not also looking at the fact that if you repeat a program, you lose novelty now. It's not like exciting to you the same way it was the first time as well, like you've been talking to with attention. And I think that's, that's an example or an anecdote that as you're talking, I feel like fits with what you're saying is that, because if it was purely gas, we could just repeat those programs and it would be just fine. <laughs> but that's why we need to come up with new ones. They fit the same principles, but things are different. We still are driving attention and novelty and paying attention to social and emotional elements. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a, really, that's a really good point to bring out. Um, myself and uh, Craig Pickering, I don't know if you remember, ex international sprinter. Yeah, so we did a paper published in Sports Med, and, and Craig was interested in genetics and genetic differences. And we 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 reviewed the the available genetic evidence, and we could you know show that you can respond to a training program now. Like I will respond differently to a training program than you. You will respond differently to you a year ago, and that the. How, the, how your experience now and your experience then differs, we don't know. So there's, there's a big kind of missing chunk. How we interpret how we're likely to respond to training is, it's just, it's guesswork. And even if, and I used to think previously that, well, if someone responded well before, they're more than likely to do again. But no, that kind of non-responder, high-responder dynamic can flip. So it makes it really hard. Now, a lot of the time, what I think we're something like periodization, which is a pretty kind of simplistic model, that's great if you're if you don't know what to do because we all hate uncertainty. So if you don't know what to do, it gives you a sense of okay, this is something concrete I can do, and I think that's fine. But if you were if you're looking to push your practice, if you're looking to be you know, to move more down the optimal level of the scale, then we need to be thinking through these problems. That's like a training program that's just facts and figures and numbers. That's not a training program. That's just, well, here's what I'm forecasting, even in the knowledge that you can't actually forecast what the best training is. So I think of training rather than a, a prescription, it's, okay, how do I design the process? Where the process is, how do I collect information? Where information is also athlete beliefs, perspectives, opinion. And then how can we make those processes automatic? So if you like, at the back end of the process, you're actually spitting out what you're going to do next in training. So it's, 
it's kind of just that shift from it's the coach in the darkened room creating a work of genius that tells you what you're going to do for the next couple of months. It's me and the coach or the coach group or whatever it is. Okay, we need to evolve a set of processes that inform what we do. Now, sometimes that's not feasible because you've limited time. Maybe you have a big squad. Maybe you're working with, you know, in the university context in the US, for example, you could be working with a lot of athletes across different squads. And then you just have to be pragmatic. You can't be, you know, looking for the optimal program. It's what's the most pragmatic program. But I don't really see an example where the best pragmatic program is I'm just going to go and do something that I know is so full of flaws that it's not correct. And when I say full of flaws, I again, I'm talking about our conventional approach to program, periodization, planning, programming. It doesn't factor in what does the athlete think and how can I change that? It doesn't screen for the athlete beliefs. It doesn't build in athlete perspectives and opinions and feedback and athlete self-direction. And maybe the last piece is just a little more on the education. If we get an athlete at 18, we shouldn't be having the same conversation with them as we are when they're 25 or they're 30 or they're 35. We have to take responsibility for helping them evolve their thought processes, their background education. So when you get an athlete at 18, your prescription might look like in one thing. But when you're working with them and they're a 34-year-old elite athlete going to their last Olympics, then it needs to be something different. They need to have been educated and have the kind of self-awareness to give meaningful feedback or be the designer of the program and the coach is just a sounding board. But again, it's just something we often see that well, planning is the same when you're when you're this age, just when you're when you have 10 years more experience. And it shouldn't be. But to facilitate that, we just need to educate as athletes go through their career. Yeah, kind of to wrap this up, John, the last question, maybe just kind of a, this will be a little bit of a nutshell type question, but you have, you've mentioned the scream for beliefs idea, which I saw, so I had written that down and highlighted it and put an exclamation point behind it. I just, I love that idea because so often it's like, well, here's this movement screen for injuries, you know, <laughs> like we're going to predict injury through a movement screen, but no one talks about a, like a belief screen. And so I'm curious what, I mean, you've mentioned it a little bit already or alluded to that, those ideas in coaching, but I'm curious what, what might be included in that screen or, or what some elements might look like there. And then I also, if we have time, I'd be curious to on just kind of a checklist for the non-responder and maybe that fits hand in hand with the belief screen. So uh, thoughts on the belief screen and, and maybe a checklist of sorts for someone who's a non-responder with uh, tra- a training program. Perfect. Well, I'd love to take ownership of the screen idea but it's something i picked up from the medical world the medical research where they were looking at how they can make medications more effective and one of the ways the key ways was well i need to find out what the patient believed will help them and then i match my medication to their beliefs and that's not something as you know that's conventional in in a medical context, but they found it very effective. So, yeah, so it's from there I got it. It's like, yeah, well, if I'm prescribing this exercise for this person, I need to either explain to them why they need to buy that argument 
or I need to find out what the block is, like why they don't believe in it, and I need to change it. Because for me, giving the exercise, giving an athlete an exercise they don't believe in is just, you know, it's fundamentally self-limiting, you know, not a waste of energy mm. uh, and a waste, a waste of actually trust and faith. So, so that's the kind of screening for beliefs. In relation to non-responder, yeah, maybe I shouldn't use non-responder. I don't really think there's non-responder. There's low response. Mm-hmm. There's low, res- low response, high response. Now, I think that if you were identifying somebody within a squad that was a low responder to training, I think there's a number of, of, of things that, that I would do. First thing, I would check their beliefs and then look at either changing those or adapting the session in a way where you were getting the same result or you were moving towards the same result as you want to get from a kind of general performance perspective. But you were also taking into account their concerns and you were navigating around those concerns in some way. Like if it was a high-intensity, I don't know, agility-type session, Maybe you find out that, well, you know, I had this previous knee injury and that session always fires it up. You go, okay, no problem. Let's break it down. Let's take out those turns or let's reduce the number of turns on that side and just see if you get pain after this and then let's grow it. Or you, you can always do something to say to the athlete, to signal to the athlete, I am taking your perspective into account. I agree with you. It's important. Here's what I'm doing. To, massage, to, to manipulate the training variables to get you the same effect but by reducing your concern. Something like that, for example. So low responder, high responder, there's all kinds of things you can change. Change beliefs. Are they stressed? Are they not stressed? Can I change the delivery? So if it's, I don't know, if it's a strength training session, change exercises, change sets and reps. Or, you know what, let's do a much shorter session, but we'll make it a little bit more intense. And I guess it's, this is going from a basic place in, in my head where I'm thinking, there's no way I can predict what will work for this person. So how can I quickly kind of rotate through a number of sensible, viable options that they buy into to try and find the right fit? Then when we find the right fit, then we can keep that team and manipulate that team as time goes on did that make a degree of sense yeah yeah for sure i i believe that coaching like you had said like the the idea of this coach is this you know the coach goes into the dark room and comes up with the ultimate training program and like but it's like it's much more of a facilitation or a partnership with the athlete understanding what they perceive as great training what do they love doing what training are they not like thinking about, oh, is this going to work? You know, what, what, uh, and, and great coaches I've experienced, um, training alongside, they do that. They take the athlete's opinion into account, uh, seriously. And it is that like partnership where they understand that with the athlete and what they, uh, what they want, what they enjoy doing. And I've seen that play out in different ways. I think it's always individual to coach a little bit, how exactly it plays out, but that always is just, to me, that seems a lot more successful trend-wise than <laughs> this thought of, oh, yeah, it's just the, the magician in the dark room coming up with the ultimate program. And 
yeah, I think you can, I, I think sometimes good programming too, like has that feeling to it. There's a self-directedness uh, to that. So I know even in my own, you know, when I'm intake clients, I always, on my intake sheet, it asks them, uh, well, what training did you, do you like doing? What's worked well for you in the past? What's your favorite workout <laughs> that's been on there? And that's always, that's always something that's important for me to understand. And yeah, I, I think that's just such a good, uh, it's a good way to close out the show. Definitely so many things to think about. It makes good sense, John. So thank you so much for your time. I know we didn't, we didn't get through all the questions, probably like three of them, but those are the best shows, you know, where are just like, we can really take a deep dive into some of these things. So I appreciate your time and definitely gave me a lot of things to think about and, and compile with my own thought process. Well, look, Joel, um, I really enjoy this. The same as our first contact. I'm sorry. I, I, I know I rambled on, but I guess like you, I, you know, I, I feel kind of passionately and strongly and I've spent, spent a professional life trying to develop and understand these things better. So, yeah, I mean, if any of your, your listeners have any feedback or anything like that, uh, I'll give you a, a link and, and people can hit me back. Thank you for tuning in to another show. If you're interested in contacting John, if you go to the Just Fly Sports podcast main page, scroll down, uh, we'll have some links you can contact, give John feedback or ask him questions within his bio there. And just thank you again for listening. Really appreciate it. If you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or review on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. We'll see you guys next week.